Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. And the topics discussed are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Uh, I am Justin Burke, joined tonight by our wonderful co-host, Chris the Chew Man Chew, and special producer, Cleo Rochat. Cleo, say hi. Hi. That's you. Leo, is, is it Rochat or did I totally just bomb on this? Rochat. Anything's fine. Rochat. Okay. <laughs> it was like a French Rocher. Or, uh, great. Um, sorry. It's beautiful. Wonderful to have you. We had a, a lot of fun tonight with a incredible guest, Dr. Eric Baum. He came to talk about acutotitis media and I came into the show feeling confident about AOM and left feeling like a much more experienced rock star. I learned so much in this episode about a common core pediatric topic. I think it was awesome. But before we share all of the things that Justin learned with the listeners, hey Chris. Yeah, what's up, man? What um, what's the what, what's the story of the show? What do, what do we do here? Oh yeah, no problem. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Eric Baum. Dr. Baum is a physician at Connecticut Pediatric Otolaryngology, a practice in the New Haven area. He has long been involved in teaching the ENT residents at the Yale New Haven Hospital and the medical students at the Yale School of Medicine. He heard about the Cribsiders from his fellow musician and medical school classmate, Brian Alverson, and is honored to be part of this episode. Dr. Baum teaches us about how to obtain a thorough history and perform an exam for acute otitis media, the role of pneumatic otoscopy, when to refer to ENT specialists, and how ear tubes work, like how ear tubes work, like opening an old can of tomato juice. So without further ado, let's get to it. All right, hey, Chris, what's one second line treatment for otitis media? Uh, I don't know. Ceftonir. Ceftonir. I didn't catch that. What? No, it, uh, Ceftonir, it really was. Uh, it actually is a good second line treatment for otitis. That, was, that wasn't a joke, that was a pearl. Oh, got it. Yep. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. We are so excited to have you. Uh, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's great to be here. As uh, as we had discussed, I had listened to a few of the episodes, and and I, it's great. I'm so happy to hear that. It's it's nice. It's nice to have a fan on the show. You know. Um, we love to get to know our guests kind of early on, uh, by doing some rapid fire questions. Can you kind of tell the listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe who you are. And, uh, sometimes we have people describe themselves in a one liner on round. Sometimes we just throw that out. Uh, but, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm an, I guess I'm an almost 50 year old, uh, jazz piano player and bread baker. I live in, um, I live in Hamden, Connecticut. Hamden is where you go. If you're if if downtown New Haven is just too exciting for you, and it's <laughs> it's right next door, uh, and I've been here for about 15 years. Actually, this is the first place that I came out of my training, uh, which was all in Philadelphia. I um, I have two teenage girls, and uh, my wife is is also a physician, but she unfortunately only takes care of big people, not kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so combined, you're med peds. 
Yes. Yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, I guess we are. Uh, although it's, it's always funny for each of us to listen to each other on the phone with patients because the other person's always like, oh my God, I couldn't imagine doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How are your uh, teenage daughters dealing with COVID? I imagine now is not an ideal time to be a teenage girl. It's not. I will say that um, it, it is truly the first time that I've been thankful that my children are teenagers. People that have, and, and I'm, I'm sure you guys know this, you know, talking to parents and, and colleagues and stuff, having young children, I think right now is extraordinarily difficult, uh, especially if you really have any expectations that they're going to, you know, to continue to get something out of school. I, I think I'm lucky. My girls are they're, they're pretty serious students. I don't really get involved in their day-to-day schoolwork and they're doing it as long as I have a ton of food in the house. Um, <laughs> I mean, they're okay. Nice. It's good to hear. So Chris, my third question, oh, what were you going to say, man? I was going to say that Chris has school-age children. He has a lot. He has a, Chris has oh. nine school, no, he has four, <laughs> four school-age children. Yeah. Oh, the littlest two don't, don't go to school quite you're yet. Right, you're right. Sorry. Yeah. In fact, the littlest one doesn't even walk, so <laughs> we're getting there. <laughs> they were never doing that well in school to be done. <laughs> so, I, so my, my eldest is actually eight, and uh, he gets in trouble for not showing his work on his math. He just says, and he's just like, I did it in my head, Dad. And I was like, yeah. show your work. That's show work. Anyhow, so my, my, my favorite question is, what is your favorite failure, and what did you learn from it? Well, is it okay if I say I don't? I don't really like any of my failures. Uh, uh, and, and the other answer to the question that I can, that I can say is, you know, like today, this week, this month, <laughs> there's plenty of, but actually my, my favorite failure that I think is the most entertaining was actually somebody else's, but I think that I, I learned from it. This is not a way of weaseling out of admitting <laughs> that there are plenty of failures. But when I first was in practice, I was at the hospital and you know, you're like the new guy and, and you don't, you know, you don't really know your place in the hierarchy and you try and be respectful. And I'm, I'm going in the recovery room after doing some small procedure, I put tubes in some kid or something like that. And, uh, the mom said to me, Hey, is that, uh, you know, Dr. So-and-so who was one of like the, like the chairman or something like some big shot or something. And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I think it is. It's like the guy interviewed me before I took the job, but that was the last time I talked to him. And she said, well, Oh my gosh, you've got to say, you know, you've got to send our regards. He, he took care of, you know, little Johnny way back when, and, and he's, he's just the greatest. Do you know how great he is? And I said, well, you know, I, uh, sure. Let me, you know, I'll, I'll let him know. So anyway, so I, I finish up and I walk over and I say, Hey, you know, Dr. So-and-so I, I, I mean, maybe they don't care, but they, they, I said that I would sort of send my regards. It's that patient that's in, you know, in, in that spot in the PACU. And he looks over and he says, what was the name? And I said the name, he goes, are you serious? I, I, I said, yeah. I mean, I'm not like, who would make a joke like this, right? And I'm thinking like, is there something wrong with this guy? He doesn't even sort of get this story. I'm just trying to pass along that the mom gave the regards. And I said, yeah, what's so confusing about it? And he said, he goes, if that's who I think it is, which it is, like we screwed that case up six ways from Sunday. I can't oh, believe no. that that mom even says my name without spitting on the ground. And so it just it just goes to show you that I don't think we're really going to, I don't think we're really very good at predicting what some of our failures and successes are. So, you know, keep an open mind in a generic way. I would say my favorite failures are the ones that I'm pretty sure I haven't exactly repeated. If I can say that, then I guess yeah. I'm okay. That's a good one. I like yeah. that. Favorite failures are the ones that you can say you probably haven't repeated. Yeah. That's about, that's about the limit. Yeah. 
Yeah, I feel like if you're really nice to the patient, sometimes they forget your failures. Or at least that's my that's my life philosophy. Well, I mean, it's there's a number of reasons to just try and be nice to the patients, but that's definitely one of them. That's fair. Um, one of the questions I always ask is because I love consuming media. Um, I have a book list that is ever growing because of this podcast, but love to hear people's recommendations. Do you have a book recommendation of something that you think every physician should read or that you just think is uh, worth having on the shelf? Uh, I think every physician, and uh, I'll definitely direct this um, towards people who are still in, in medical school and training, it needs to read some books about personal finance. This is um, this is absolutely imperative, and it's only getting more so, more and more debt, uh, less and less guidance. Uh, the fact that sharply increasing number of physicians finishing their training are going into employed positions in large organizations does not obviate the need uh, for you to take charge uh, of your finances. And doctors historically have done a pretty poor job of it. They, uh, for a long time, were able to paper over that because their incomes were good and a lot of their costs were low. That was never really an acceptable reason, and it's certainly not now. A couple of them, and I don't think you really have to be too prescriptive. There are many good ones out there. A couple that I, I particularly like, and they include sort of the web resources and the books, uh, include The White Coat Investor, uh, which is an excellent oh. website. There's a book. The truth is, if you read through the archives of the blog on the website, you pretty much got what's in the book. Um, I don't think that the guy that's running it is trying to just make an extra buck, but I, you know, that, that's a great uh, resource. And then the Bogleheads um, hmm. uh, website, there are some books that have been generated from that. That's uh, a website that's run by and, and sort of dedicated to the philosophy of Jack Bogle, the late uh, founder of the Vanguard Group, which really sort of revolutionized low-cost index investing uh, and opened it up to the masses. Uh, he, he actually, I think, for the purposes of thinking about how important taking charge of your own financial life is, he's really one of the most important figures in personal finance you know, wow. of the last 50 years. So th those two are good. There are many, many others uh, out there, uh, but that's, that's a good place to start. And I just, I, you know, I, I don't think anybody in school is telling you to do it. And people in training to become physicians are good about doing what they tell you to do in school, which keeps you pretty busy, but I'm now giving you another homework assignment. Nice. That's great. I think that's yeah. the first thing we've ever had. I, I find a recommendation on the show. I, I think so too, but a white coat investor, I like a lot. It's a great resource. I'll have to check out the Bogrel heads. I, um, I just put all my money in timber. Yeah. Lumber. <laughs> that should be fine. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, that should be. Yeah. This whole, uh, computer internet thing is probably just a, yeah, it's a bubble. Yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. Um, no money to be made in podcasting. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By podcast suck. All right, guys. So let's um let's dive into some some content. What do you say? Sounds good. I would say acute otitis media. I'm very excited to learn more about this. And I'll I'll start by saying, and this probably exposes maybe some of my ignorance, but the amount we talked about acute otitis, the amount of times I've seen people come in with a diagnosis of otitis is so much more than the number of times that I have diagnosed acute otitis media. And I'm very excited to learn if that is because it's overdiagnosed, if people aren't just, I think sometimes if they have a fever, they just get antibiotics, or if uh, this is just an enormous gap in my knowledge, and I'm going to head out of here with a much better understanding of the common pediatric presentation of acute otitis media. So we're going to start with our first case. Uh, Otis is a 18-month-old with no significant past medical history coming into a walk-in outpatient clinic at Cat Children's Hospital by his parents. 
Uh, his parents know that Otis has been crying and pulling at his right ear for the past one day. They took his temperature at home, which was 101.1 degrees on exam. He is uncomfortable. His right tympanic membrane is bulging and pale yellow in color with surrounding erythema. So in this one, I think we give it uh, a little bit away in that he's crying, he's got a fever, and he's got a bulging pale yellow TM. But let's start right from the start. How would you approach a patient with ear tugging and fever? And what do you talk about with patients if maybe there's not a great findings of acute otitis? And then if there are, how do you kind of talk about this with parents? You know, like everything else we do, you know, probably 90% of it is, is a good history. You know, a little bit less than 10% of it is the physical exam. And then all the other billion dollar gizmos that we've come up with is the other, you know, 0.8% or whatever it is. So, so I want to know a number of things about this kid. And, and as, as you guys all know, the parents' prior experience, just knowing this child better than anybody else is your best resource. You know, has this ever happened before uh, to this child? That will help us figure out how sensitive and specific we think the tugging on the ear is. A lot of kids touch their ears a lot. It doesn't always mean something. This is parenthetically, I think, especially true uh, for certain kids that are delayed and kids that are on the spectrum. And unfortunately, in my experience, not just at this age group, but even older kids, parents sometimes put really sort of a lot of meaning into that. And I'm, I'm not so sure that I agree with that. But if they say, you know, he never does that, and he really started doing that, well, that, you know, that means something to me. And of course, a sort of general pediatric pearl uh, to try and figure out really how much the kid is off their game. You know, I asked the parents, you know, this may, may not be their first kid, is this kid routinely a good eater and a good sleeper? And has that been affected in the last couple of days? That really tells you a lot. Uh, it also tells you potentially about the trajectory of the illness, because I think sometimes that when they took the temperature doesn't always give you a complete graph of, you know, the rise and fall of this patient's fever. So we're really trying to flesh out the details of the story. Um, that being said, you know, I mean, eventually you've got your story and that's all you're going to get. You've got to do uh, a physical exam. And, and I thought the details of, of this particular presentation are interesting because they get us to drop right into the totally confusing morass of signs and uh, signs on physical exam that we're supposed to use to try and categorize these kids into these very minutely shaded uh, differences. And it's, it, I have to be honest with you, it doesn't work that well. What, what the guidelines and the papers are trying to do is trying to help us stratify so we don't undertreat and we don't overtreat. That's a laudable goal. There's no question about it. But the background that's lurking right underneath the surface is that it's predicated on the fact that they're pretty sure that your physical exam is going to be very inadequate a lot of the time. And I, I think you want to try and do better than that. Because the truth is, all this stuff that we've talked about with the history and what you've observed before you've actually taken the otoscope out is secondary to what you see if you actually get a good ear exam. And this may sort of answer Justin's question that I think he was saying before, which is, if I think I'm getting a good exam of the ear and I'm confident with what I see, uh, um, could I still be missing it? I don't think so. I think what you're seeing when you're unimpressed with the exam, you know, after they came breathlessly in, you know, 12 hours after they went to the walk-in clinic or the ER, is not that it looked different before and it's already gone away, but that they might have overdiagnosed acute otitis media. And it's hard because you got a screaming kid, you might have wax, you have a parent that's upset and at the end of their rope, they're doing the worst possible job in helping you hold this kid. 
you don't want to miss anything and you want to have an answer for a kid who's you know normally well behaved and really is not right now but if it's not acute otitis media then it's not and so part of those history questions what are the big things other than you know not acting at baseline and focused on the ear that really separates even mild otalgia from a a bacterial infection that warrants consideration of treatment? I think if you're thinking about consideration of, of antibacterial treatment, or, or even if you're just thinking about like aggressive analgesia, like people need to have a fever. The middle ear is a cavity. Right. If it's sort of got purulent drainage in it, that's enough to annoy the surrounding tissue, um, then in an immunocompetent patient, they should have a fever. Obviously, we all know about special situations, patients where we're very worried because they don't mount a response. But that's that's not what we're worried about with this patient right here. That's a that's a topic for another time. I think that there are some unusual situations where parents can kind of catch things early. Some of these kids are very, very even keeled and they can really sniff out when their child is sort of off their game. And I have had a few times when I've looked and been like, that's not a very impressive exam, but there's something going on. And it did sort of blossom over the next day or so. But mm. that's actually pretty rare. You can usually be pretty comfortable that if you are not seeing acute otitis media, that the patient isn't hiding it. So fever is a, a big one. We talked about the sort of basic historical stuff. Sometimes anorexia is kind of a, an interesting one because a lot of times when there's middle ear inflammation or an acute change in pressure in the middle ear, there's a lot of discomfort with swallowing and with lying supine. Parents don't always know how to answer that question. They haven't thought about it, but sometimes they do. Oh, you know, she was fine, but she just kept going crazy every time I tried to lie her down to change her diaper. Again, it's not a definitive thing, but everything is a little bit of a clue. Uh, what else can we see? Uh, a lot of the cases and a lot of the guidelines talk about otorrhea. Uh, spontaneous perforation of the eardrum in acute otitis media as a percentage of vanilla ear infections is not that common. So that's pretty specific, but it's not that sensitive for acute otitis media. And I'm also a little bit disappointed that everybody's guidelines say that that's an absolute indication for oral antibiotics as if a perforated acute otitis media is some sort of more virulent uh, infection. I don't think that that's a huge part of it. I also think it's an opportunity to use drops, maybe not just drops, but I mean, if you got an opening into the middle ear, you know, drops are awesome. Are, are there any like slam dunk symptoms? Like, are there symptoms that you're like, this is something that really tips the favor in the fact that this is otitis and people should not miss this. I mean, I think, I think some of the presentations of complications and that, and that, and we'll get to that in a second, but actually one of the things that I, I like to think about when I think about complications of acute otitis media, I think sometimes we worry, I have this universe of children that sort of, you know, they're sort of around me in the community and I need to know when any of them has something that could potentially progress to a complication. And it is true that in the pre-antibiotic era, and in places where we don't use as many antibiotics, you do have an increase in complications of acute otitis media. However, I believe that most worrisome complications of acute otitis media are less because of a prolonged missing of the diagnosis or a prolonged undertreatment and more idiosyncratic, which is to say that a significant percentage of the episodes of mastoiditis that you're going to see, or even an intracranial complication, or something like a spontaneous perforation is just sort of built in uh, as a roll of the dice. And so I don't want people to worry 
I need to really shade towards the more aggressive as a baseline in diagnosing acute otitis media. So I cut down on my complications. Complications are complications and they kind of out of left field and you're going to deal with them as they come up. That being said, if this patient presents with a complication of acute otitis media, if you can figure that out, then you can treat that patient faster, which is going to have a noticeable positive effect on the outcome. And you can now target your therapy um, towards what's causing it. So, you know, children that come in with an altered mental status, you know, I'm going to leave it to smarter doctors than me, like you guys, about what the huge differential is and all the things you need to do. But if we know that that patient has a raging ear infection, well, I mean, now we're, we're way ahead of the game. Um, we can get the source of that taken care of quite quickly. We can treat that patient and we don't have to do all kinds of exotic, crazy things like wait for CSF cultures to come back and stuff like that. So to answer Chris's question, a patient that presents with facial weakness or facial paralysis, uh, again, the only times that I've seen that, it has been an out of left field thing. It's an otherwise healthy patient and most of them have had ear infections before. And this time, you know, they got uh, a facial paralysis mastoiditis, or what I like to call sort of like almost mastoiditis. Sometimes patients start getting erythema and pain and swelling behind the external ear. And you're like, well, is this mastoiditis? Is it not? Considering how we've changed the way we treat acute mastoiditis, I'm not sure I worry so much whether that's truly mastoiditis uh, or not, because we end up treating it the same way, which is more conservatively than we used to. Other things that I think you don't want to miss. Yeah, I guess obviously any intracranial complication. If there's any sign that you think there's meningeal signs, um, uh, that there's uh, really like a change in consciousness or or significant mental status, then obviously you know the ear is usually usually does its own thing, but it's in a bad neighborhood. So I want I want to step back ju just a little bit because I, I think we we sort of skipped this portion. Yeah. Um, but what what exactly causes a otitis media, and what are like some of the the risk factors for people like? It, are these infections coming up de novo? Do people just have anat reasons for anatomy? Like, well, how, how are they coming about? You know, we think we know. Um, and, and it's interesting because there's been a lot of, I, I don't, there's been a lot of careful research, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's very hard to sort of prove it. What we think we know mechanistically is, is based on what travels along with it. And, and one of the things to remember is that most young children, which is the major population group that gets recurrent ear infections by far, starts out with a viral upper respiratory infection. And so you're talking about nasopharyngeal carriage and mucosal edema in a patient who has immature eustachian tube function. Of course, the eustachian tube is sort of designed to fail because it's a passageway between two areas that's supposed to keep those areas separated most of the time, except the few times a day when it's not supposed to because it has to equalize pressure and release the little bit of fluid that that part of the body makes. So that's like that's a setup for failure. And the same reason that like, you know, the larynx is a setup for failure. It's supposed to be open except when it's not. And then if it doesn't do that right, then all kinds of bad things happen. So I don't know if that really explains exactly what the mechanism is, although there's all kinds of studies based on success of treatment uh, by looking at nasopharyngeal carriage of bacteria and viruses. So I think it's, I think it's something in that area. It is sort of something mechanical. What's been a little bit, I don't want to say disappointing, because I just think that tough problems take a long time to solve, is that in recent years, looking at directly treating the eustachian tube mechanically, uh, which has started out with adults, I'm certainly not letting them monkey around with my patients. They can monkey around with some old people for a while. It's actually been relatively disappointing in fixing eustachian tube problems. So we, we still have a lot to learn about that. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Lipset. 
Would you like to learn more about pediatric pneumonia? Here are some pearls. First, the majority of pneumonia in children is viral, but strep pneumo and mycoplasma are the most common bacterial causes. Second, recommended first-line treatment of bacterial pneumonia in kids is high-dose amoxicillin for seven days. Third, if a child with pneumonia worsens, consider obtaining an x-ray or ultrasound to rule out complications such as an empyema. Want to learn more? Check out the Pediatric Pneumonia Podcast on the Cribsiders. Let's go back and, you know, what makes the diagnosis of acute otitis media? When can we say this child has acute otitis? If it's a combination or what if we also, you know, had these exam findings where there was some bulging, but the symptoms weren't quite there. There was no fever or we saw an erythematous canal with fever, but there was no bulging. What makes us think that this is an acute otitis media infection? And then we can talk about the causes. Acute otitis media is essentially an abscess. So if you can prove that there is purulent fluid, meaning fluid with white blood cells to, you know, some concentration, in the middle ear space, and the patient has acute otitis media. Unfortunately, that information alone is not going to answer the question that I know you want me to answer, which is what tells you definitively that this patient does or doesn't need antibiotics? And that should be something that people get comfortable with, not uncomfortable with, because there are going to be times when you are confident that a patient has acute otitis media and comfortable with the idea that they don't need antibiotic treatment or they don't need antibiotic treatment right now. But to answer your question, that's why I think the exam is very important. You combine it with those details of the history that we talked about before in order to come up with maybe not a formalized score, but sort of a score in your mind about how strongly you feel about treating. But in the end, the exam is what tells you whether the patient has acute otitis media. It's interesting. One of the papers that we looked at before uh, we had this conversation was, I think it was one of the guidelines. I don't remember which one had a nice set of four pictures of sort of increasing severity of acute otitis media on otoscopic exam. And the caption was very interested in the level of bulging of the eardrum. But what I was most interested is that the four pictures, I think, much more obviously showed an increase in the thickness and opacity of the middle ear effusion behind that bulging eardrum. I think bulging eardrums are sometimes hard to discern. I have an advantage because I get to go to the operating room, you know, with a $200,000 microscope and a child that's anesthetized and lift everything up and poke around. When you have a two-dimensional view with an otoscope and all the less than ideal circumstances in the office, I, I think it's sometimes pretty hard to tell if there's bulging, bulging is the third dimension. You don't have depth perception with monocular otoscopy. So yes, sometimes you can really see this pillowy thing come out and you can say, well, that's definitely bulging. But I don't think it's actually as good a sign as trying to discern what's behind that eardrum and if there's engorgement of the vessels on the surface of the eardrum, which is also a very good sign that whatever's going on behind it is inflammatory. And what about the pneumatic otoscopy? Is that is there an approach to how we can be doing this in the primary care clinic? There is. I and and I think I think everyone's got to sort of find their own way with that. Pneumatic otoscopy, I think, is one of those things that sort of helps you as you're learning. Not that that ever necessarily ends, but I think it. I think, for instance, I, I feel like I got better at doing otoscopy even without pneumatic otoscopy after having done it with pneumatic otoscopy for a while. The analogy that I use when I talk to like the surgical residents is, 
you want to do a bunch of like tonsillectomies and other procedures that we don't normally use magnification for with your loops, because then you'll be better at it even after you stop using your loops for it. Uh, pneumatic otoscopy helps you do a couple of things. One of them is, I, I think sometimes you're so disoriented. This is not something to be ashamed of. The ear is sort of a wacky and very variably shaped thing. Sometimes it just sort of tells you what you're looking at. The best example of that, of course, is like the kids with these tiny crooked canals. And sometimes the skin is so thick, it's like pillowy. Sometimes I think I need pneumatic otoscopy just to tell me which thing is the eardrum. I'm not ashamed to say that. The second thing is, if there's something behind a translucent membrane, which is what the tympanic membrane is, it's not totally clear and it's almost never totally opaque. If you can move that up and down towards or even against the thing behind it, that gives you much more visual information. That's particularly true in cases of middle ear pathology that are not acute otitis media, like cholesteatoma, or sometimes you're looking at the eardrum and you're saying, is that just really severely diffusely retracted? And the pneumatic otoscopy tells you, oh yeah, that's actually lying on the bone of the medial wall of the middle ear. That's great information. Other things about pneumatic otoscopy that I think are important to know, there is a technique to it, and that includes starting with the appropriate sized and shaped speculum. Obviously, if you don't have a seal, it's not going to work. Um, you're going to have to experiment with that because most of the specula that are available and that most uh, people have uh, are not necessarily the ones that have those bulbous things near the tip. Those are not necessary, but they often help. Um, I'm a big believer that you should get in the habit of using the biggest speculum that will fit anyway. Better view, better lighting, safer and more comfortable for the patient. People tend to go for sort of a small one because they're worried. But again, start paying attention to what size works for what age patient, and you can start getting bigger and bigger, which really works better. Another thing with pneumatic otoscopy that's important to know is that a lot of otoscopes are no longer, they lose their seal. So before you try it on a patient, stick mm. your finger over the tip of the otoscope, uh, the tip of the speculum, and puff it. And in fact, if it's really sealed well, you'll pop that speculum right off, and, and then you'll know that it'll work. And then the third thing that I think is important about pneumatic otoscopy is in acute otitis media, it can be extremely uncomfortable. That's not against the law. That can be a, a useful clue. I think that people experienced in taking care of children can tell the difference between I just annoyed this child and I just caused uh, transient discomfort for this child. So that's, that's valuable too, because the kids that are like, eh, I don't like it. That's not pain. You know what pain is. And sometimes if you're really pretty suspicious that you are going to cause pain, you want to do negative pressure pneumatic otoscopy. So you cinch down that bulb, then you put your otoscope in the ear, and then you let go. For whatever reason, it seems that tugging on the eardrum, even at the same level of robustness, is less uncomfortable. And it can be at least as valuable to you for the exam. So that's a little bit of stuff about pneumatic otoscopy. That's a great pearl. It sounds like the true diagnosis then is is looking at not just the bulging and not just the pneumatic otoscopy, but the white cells, the pus behind the ear. And so we can work on having kind of a high pretest probability based on this history of ear tugging that hasn't happened before, fever, um, and maybe even some anorexia because of the difficulty with swallowing. Um, but it's those, it's the white cells that were the pus that we're seeing behind the ear that really cinches this is acute otitis media. Is that safe? I to think say? so, but let's talk about a couple of other things also Great. while we're while we're on the physical exam. So one of my least favorite things is a little red. 
<laughs> yeah. A little red is the, you know, what do they say that, that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel or whatever. Hmm. That's the, I don't know. And I don't want to say that I don't yeah. know, but what does redness really mean? So first of all, one thing that's very important to know is, uh, and we know this from everyday life, different people have very varying amounts of blanchability of their skin. Uh, patients, uh, you know, people, and this may be more common in people, let's say with, with lighter complexions and red hair and things like that. But some people, their skin color changes a lot, especially when they get upset, let's say with a screaming toddler, all the more reason that you need to make sure that you're not looking at the canal skin near the drum and you're actually looking at the drum, which is not always so easy to differentiate. Mm. That's another way in which pneumatic otoscopy can help. The skin of the canal isn't going to move, maybe a little bit on some downs kit, but the eardrum's going to move. Number two, I do think that there are rare times when early acute otitis media, there is actually a lot of true inflammation, erythema, and engorgement without much impressive behind it yet, because the eardrum is a porthole looking into a space that you can't see 100% of. But that's pretty rare. If you feel like those borderline cases are the only ones you're not comfortable with, and I'm going to be pretty happy. But engorgement of the vessels on the drum, they're thicker. They look like they're almost standing out. There are vessels that often run parallel to the long process of the malleus. You start to get to know those better. That's not something that really changes when someone bears down and is screaming their head off. A diffuse redness, yes. I don't know what that means. I don't think it means anything. But vessel engorgement is useful. And again, it's, it's worth trying to sort of get good at these things and then having the level of confidence to say, I see why someone else who through no fault of their own had maybe a less than ideal exam thought this might be mild or early acute otitis media, but it's not. So my, my next question is, so we, we're, we're talking a lot about our physical exam findings and about technique on how to look in people's ears. And definitely these are things that are more practical. You, we just, people just have to practice looking at ears and learn their techniques and how to have parents hold the kids in certain ways. Everyone has their own best way to hold, have the kids being held by the mom or dad. But when we actually look at those pictures, sometimes it just takes a lot of experience and a lot of like looking at a lot of pictures. So like when I listen, when I have my med students listen to the heart, all the time, even if it's completely normal, because you have to see a lot here and see a lot of normal to understand what abnormal looks like. That's sort of difficult. You know, we're here in a podcast, you know, do you have any like online resources or other references that people can go to, to so that they can just experience a, like a lot of pictures of what yours look like? I think there are some. Um, I wish that there were more. Uh, early on in my career, when I ran, I don't know what we call it now, but we, we would call like a ward service clinic. Uh, not only did I have the junior ENT residents with me, but I had the senior pediatrics and med-peds residents with me, which of course was better for me than for them because they would teach me stuff that I needed to know about all the other stuff. I, it's hard to believe that there is actually stuff outside the head and neck in patients. <laughs> and, and I mean, it's amazing. I had no idea. But um, so that was great for me. But what I really felt that I could help them with, you know, you're talking about people that are almost done with their training, really, really good really good with parents and children. But for me to be able to say to them, that ear that you just looked at, did you see A, B, and C? So I think even a little bit of that, I mean, I had them with me one afternoon a week for like six weeks. It wasn't some huge rotation. And they had told me that that was helpful. So that's one thing is to just try and collar somebody that, that has a lot of experience with this. And I do think that otolaryngologists have an advantage that even let's say a busy pediatrician or 
family practitioner or emergency room doctor his. It's not just the pure volume because we see less acute otitis media certainly than pediatricians do. It's that we know a little bit more about what's going on, you know, in the sausage factory there because of what we do in the operating room. It's also an argument in favor of seeing if you can find some time to go to the operating room, mm. find an ENT doc that's doing a half a dozen sets of tubes and say, can I join you for the morning? You'll be done by 10 o'clock. <laughs> but if you can get a pair of gloves on and you can get a binocular view and grab the otoscope that you brought into the OR that you snuck in and say, let me see what this looks like right now with my otoscope, you'll be amazed at how different it looks. And so mm. you realize that somebody like me is translating where every time I look in the office with an otoscope, that's a real advantage. There are picture resources. I think that the, I think the AAP and I know the American Academy of Otolaryngology have online resources with some pictures. There are a couple of nice books. I often assign my medical students uh, if I know it's been a big day and I'm like, you guys are not going to read some big chapter on like, you know, cochlear implants tonight. Why don't you just look in some pictures? I have some books that are really just pictures of the ear. Um, and so the more experience with that you can get, uh, the better. But, but again, you know, people always talk about there's so much that we do that has like a really steep learning curve. This has a really gently sloped learning curve. Mm -hmm. You just got to get slowly, slowly, slowly better at it. I think the final question I have on physical exam before we go into treatment is in addition to it looks a little red, I feel like the other pet peeve on exam is there's a little bit of fluid behind the ears. Right. Uh, so well, I, so that's actually a good segue into treatment, and I'll tell perfect. you why. We, we said today that we were going to talk about acute otitis media, and, and acute otitis media is really important. But then there's the fluid. Uh, I don't really like to call it serous otitis media. I don't really like to call it otitis media with effusion because I don't think that it's the same thing as otitis media. I don't think it's an inflammation or infection necessarily. I really think that the correct term, which was in favor, went out of favor, and sort of seems to be coming back is middle ear effusion. It can be post-infectious. It can be unrelated to infection. But it's clinically important both with respect to its relationship to infection and treatment and its separate issues uh, in children. And in fact, if you look at a lot of the treatment recommendations and studies, in addition to this sort of nervous triaging going on because we're so worried that our diagnosis might be inaccurate, so we kind of have to use everything else to sort of handicap and shift it around. There's a little bit too much conflating of a middle ear effusion with acute otitis media. So a little bit of fluid is a little bit of fluid. And let's go back to that, you know, Justin's specific question with that and think about the fact that if we have fluid in the middle ear and it doesn't look at all inflamed, there is absolutely no indication for acute treatment. What there is, especially in a young child uh, or really anybody in school, is the obligation to now follow that in a non-emergent fashion. I don't think that uninflamed fluid is a particularly good predictor of infection coming soon. It is somewhat of a predictor that there might have been an infection recently, but like I said before, certainly not necessarily. And it is a sign that there may be a problem with drainage. Fluid that patients get either from congestion uh, in the head and neck that doesn't cause an ear infection or that's post-infectious because the body or the antibiotic has sterilized the middle ear fluid but hasn't gotten rid of it, can be expected to hang around in a healthy person that does not have eustachian tube dysfunction for up to eight weeks. And so one of the things that I like to do 
is find a way to not see patients back that are going to have fluid for a while, because then you're just causing anxiety. You're going to have to see the patient back again, and you're going to do too many things that you don't need to do, like sets of tubes for children that don't need them. So we need to separate out those things. Really what somebody should say, if a patient comes in and they see a little bit of fluid and they're pretty convinced that there's no inflammation is, it wasn't a useless visit, but it turned out to be very different than we thought. Not an ear infection, but a child we now need to follow for a middle ear effusion. What I tell parents in a lot of cases is, you come to me because of the recurrent ear infections, right? They go to the pediatrician, they get lots of antibiotics. Parents are pretty well-trained nowadays to not just ask for an antibiotic for every reason. They're very worried about overuse of it, sleepless nights, no one's going to school and work. Like it's, it's a big deal, I get it. But the thing that, ke- that I'm concerned about is the fluid. While the kid has the ear infection, there's probably a little bit of hearing loss. I mean, you know, it's inflamed, it's got purulent fluid in it and stuff like that. After the infection goes away, if there's fluid hanging around, there could still be conductive hearing loss. If they get a couple more infections, they keep extending their time period of less than ideal hearing. How long am I going to tolerate that in a growing child? There actually is, you know, some data on that. And the answer is, depends on the kid, but not forever. And to me, that's actually the more compelling reason to consider something like surgery. I don't know if that completely answers the question that you started with, Justin, but I, I thought it was important somewhere along the line with this discussion that we start parsing out the differences between those two overlapping but distinct entities. No, I think this is great because I will say, you know, similar to the a little bit of redness or ear tugging without a fever, those I feel pretty comfortable, you know, being able to say non-infectious or talger and give some uh, supportive care. I will say, you know, I do also have kiddos that come in with some congestion And it does look like they have some fluid, but their ear does not look that terrible. It does not look angry. There are no inflamed vessels. And it does just kind of look like it's a little more cloudier, but not even a fever or maybe a mild upper respiratory infection has other symptoms. I'll be honest, I don't really follow those. Is that something I should be more closely following? Well, I mean, to some extent, I mean, let's talk about what that really means. So I think, uh, you know, like I said before, you can get a viral upper respiratory infection without getting significant inflammation or significant pathogenic organisms in the middle ear, but that could increase the risk of fluid because you now do have a drainage problem uh, and you may be secreting more fluid like we do with viral upper respiratory infections, even if those actual secretions aren't, you know, the infection, right? I mean, your nose is running clear when you have a a URI and, and so is your middle ear. It's the same mucosa. And so that can be a clue, you know, that there's something going on, but it, it easily answers the question as to whether that patient needs antibiotic treatment. It doesn't totally answer the question as to whether they need treatment. But again, you're a pediatrician, like you figure out what that patient needs as far as supportive care. What I want to know with that patient is, is that fluid going to go away? If it doesn't go away, it's probably a setup for a higher risk of acute otitis media. Or at the very least, it correlates with a higher risk of acute otitis media because you've identified somebody who's not a great drainer, it's more likely than, than a clear ear to have uh, conductive hearing loss, which again, for you or me could be annoying, but for a growing child, and this has been proven to be more so of a problem in children who have, let's say, sociocultural risk factors 
for learning issues. And how is that? How is it just because it goes undiagnosed or they don't get the EI or? No, I mean, I, I just, I think that the hearing, the temporary and mild hearing loss, I think just impacts at-risk children more in a way that's harder for them to make up. In fact, I, I don't remember the specific study, but I think there was one study that correlated a small conductive hearing loss from persistent ear, you know, middle ear effusions. Mm. Uh, you could predict how much of a problem it was going to be for the kid educationally based on the parent's highest attained educational level. Wow. And there are other, you know, there are other things like that in, in child development. So, so again, if you've identified a middle ear effusion, what you've now identified is a potential non-urgent, but longer term problem. And that also answers the question that what do, what do we do to follow children after we've decided that they either do or don't have acute otitis media and, and that we are, or aren't going to treat them with antibiotics. I'm not a huge fan of seeing them back in pretty short order to see if it went got better. If they came into me because they were symptomatic and I diagnosed them based on hard signs and I decided to treat them or I decided not to treat them and they get better, then for the purposes of that particular episode and making a decision as to whether they need more antibiotic treatment or new antibiotic treatment that we delayed, why do I need to see them? Like, they're fine. Right. What I want to know is three months later, is the post-infectious effusion still there? And would you intervene potentially if it if it persists for a long time and you're concerned about, I guess, you, would you do a hearing test? And then if that's decreased, you would you go yeah. in there with a sewing needle and just pop it? That's exactly right. I think it's far and away the most concrete, common indication for tubes is an extended period of time with signs of persistent eustachian tube dysfunction. In the short term, we're a little bit worried about recurrent ear infections, but that's not a reason to be preemptive and put tubes in because some people have middle ear effusions and they don't have a very high number of ear infections. It's just something to factor in. In the medium term, we are worried about many months of decreased hearing. And again, you have to make a judgment call as to different children how long you're willing to tolerate that. You have a patient whose development is really, really good. One of these real sharp two and a half year olds. Parents really don't notice any hearing loss at home. The balance and the gross motor function is good. They haven't had a lot of ear infections. They did have that one, which is why you saw this middle ear effusion. Watch them, you know, maybe their well child visits coming up in five months. I tell the parent, come back then and we'll see if it's still there. Um, you have a child that has a pre-existing sensorineural hearing loss, has some other barriers to learning, like some developmental delays. You might say, you know what? The parents noticing some decreased hearing during the ear infection. They said that the kid no longer seems to be sick or in pain, but she's definitely not hearing well. I might send that person to an otolaryngologist after just a few weeks. So that's sort of, that's that decision. In the very long term, meaning many months to years, what we're worried about with persistent middle ear effusions, even if there's no infections, is that that could be a sign of poor drainage and ventilation. And that can be a risk factor for really bad things like continued retraction, acicular erosion, and cholesteatoma. I don't think that you need to make uh, too many changes in, in your regular practice based just on that. I mean, if you're seeing a patient like that for well child visits, and that's the only thing, then after a couple of years, if you're like, you know what, this kid's been fine, but I, that ear just still never looked right, that's an indication to have somebody else look into it. But that's not an emergency. It's just something to uh, to keep in mind. So let's let's go back to our, our patient a little bit. And, you know, he seems to, um, Otis seems to have a, a pretty bad infection. And so we decide that we're going to use 
high dose of moxicillin for 10 days. And that, that's usually what I reach for in the clinic. Um, what are the different types of bacteria that we're trying to hit with the amoxicillin? And then why are we going with high dose for this? You know, the, the classic teaching, and this is, you know, we, we need to know this is, is strep pneumo, uh, non-typable H flu. Um, and then, and then sort of the poor relation in the otitis media game is more excel. It sort of always feels bad. It's like the one kind of bringing up the rear and the, the, the percentages of the first two sort of have switched places and bounced around because of the pneumococcal uh, vaccine. It's interesting though, that the, you know, considering the fact that we don't get tissue most of the time when we treat it and that the overall incidence of pediatricians having to make a decision about treating otitis media hasn't radically changed. The, 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 those changes in the relative percentages actually, I don't think have affected our practice patterns as much as we kind of thought they would, you know, when we were excited uh, and, and anticipating what was going to happen with those, those vaccines getting into the community. Um, and so I think the, you know, the idea behind high dose amoxicillin is, is it's, um, it's really sort of hardly more dangerous or more likely to cause side effects than low dose, but it, it definitely will, will take care of some intermediate resistance uh, uh, organisms and things like that. There is sort of a lot of kind of tit for tat going back between like the pediatrics guidelines and the ENT guidelines. And even the most recent sort of big study, which was that one in the New England Journal from a few years ago about like the length of treatment, somehow in the letters to the editors, somebody kind of wrenched that whole debate into well, why uh, augmentin and, uh, you know, amox with clav and not amoxicillin? And you can kind of go around uh, in circles uh, on, on all this. The, the first line treatment, according to some guidelines, is amox clav, which is, in those cases, they assume is always the high dose. Uh, and in others is uh, the high dose plain amoxicillin. And I've even seen some recent stuff saying, well, what the heck, let's just try the low dose. Part of the problem is, and part of the problem with getting good answers as to what's really better is, you know, I still worry that we're not doing a great job in diagnosing acute otitis media. So, so again, all the guidelines have to sort of grapple with the fact that potentially somewhere between like a third and I don't know, two thirds of the patients don't really have it. And so I think you have to kind of figure out what you're comfortable with. I don't, I don't think that there's nearly as definitive an answer on the right first line agent as we would like. What is your clinical practice? Well, so my clinical practice, you got to be a little bit careful because I have a very skewed population. It's extremely rare that I see a patient that hasn't had multiple relatively recent ear infections. And we definitely uh, feel strongly, uh, at least the different groups and guidelines do. That so you're a big treat- dosing guy by the time they're coming to you. They're also, that's the, you know, that's, listed. Sort of, you know, I can go by like, you know, family members and, you know, that, that kid down the block whose mom is always sending him to my house. But, um, but so that, that's, that's sort of different. So, but one thing that I will say, and I don't, I don't know if this is really sort of helpful information for people like you who are on the front lines is um, I'm, I'm less enamored of a mox clav as I'm escalating my intervention past the pink stuff, uh, as I am of uh, cephalosporins. Um, My go-to thing is ceftonir because of compliance. Um, It's cheap. I get very few complaints about the taste. It's once a day, uh, which I think is a huge thing uh, with medication compliance. We know that from studies in adults with hypertension. that once you go from daily to BID, compliance goes, it goes down the toilet. Um, and a mox clav is, 
is uniformly despised uh, by patients and by the people that have to wipe their butts. So if it's if it's about as good, um, and I think clinically it is, uh, I, I really almost never reach for the Amox clav. Again, I have a little bit of a luxury in that it probably was already tried before I saw the kit. For some reason, Seftonir fixes iron in the gut. And so especially if a child is taking an iron supplement or a vitamin that has iron in it, their stool will be, it's not exactly bright red, you know, like hmm. it's, it's Frank blood, but it'll be rusty. And it's, I've seen some pretty impressive cases and, you know, as a pediatrician, that's not the phone call that you want at seven totally. o'clock at night, that it looks like the diaper is filled with blood. Um, and, uh, I don't, I don't know of other cephalosporins that do that. Yeah. That's good to know about. I have not heard that side effect, but it's yeah. good to be aware of. Yeah. And I just, it's an antibiotic that I use a lot. I think it's very good for sinusitis and pharyngitis also. And so it's something that I, I reach for pretty frequently, but that's, I think that's a good thing uh, to know. Um, but again, to sort of get back to the, more of the, the first line treatment, um, it, it is reasonable to think about amoxiclav, high dose amoxicillin. And again, in the cases where you're thinking I can probably get away with low dose amoxicillin, look yourself in the mirror and say, can I get away with maybe not prescribing anything? Right. right. I uh, do want to make, I, I love the idea of treating acute otitis with something called Seftonir. I feel like Seftonir is a great, uh, uh, a great ENT pun that uh, cannot, <laughs> cannot let it go. And I, a great I, way to remember. Yeah. I had never actually even thought of that. So I'm going to give you a prop. I, like, yeah, I feel like we're getting some good back and forth of uh, uh, jokes for the, the future arsenal. Bad puns may actually be the greatest legacy of organized pediatrics, actually. That, I think it's, it's only second to the golf world with bad puns. Bad puns is the best medicine, I think. Um, <laughs> I think Osler said that. Um, I um, I did want to ask, we talked about some of the pathogens and so what leads to the antibacterial that might cover them. Uh, is there a burden of viral pathogens? You know, I feel like in most pediatrics, we say it's usually mostly viral anyway. Is that true for acute otitis? Yeah, I think it is. There actually have been some studies where they actually did tympanosynthesis. You know, they look for everything. And again, you look hard enough, you'll find it. There's a famous study from, I think, 1990 uh, that Chris Post, who's who's a, a brilliant pediatric otolaryngologist in Pittsburgh, did, where they used, like, at that time, were pretty new forensic-type techniques in completely clear, sterile, middle ear effusions. And they always find bacteria and viruses. I'm not sure how relevant it is for your treatment. I think it does... Uh, bring home the fact that the primary engine behind young children getting acute otitis media is a viral upper respiratory infection, even if it's a bacterial ear infection, uh, which is also why I worry less about having to figure out, well, what was the primary infection? If it's viral, do they need the antibiotics? Again, if your exam supports it, then they need the antibiotics because the bacteria, you know, it may be that the virus causes, you know, massive dysregulation and mucosal edema and poor immune system uh, tolerance, and then now an area that's not really sterile has bacteria that are waiting to have a party. So I don't really worry too much about that distinction. I don't think there really is, a, I mean, we've never found a role for anything like treating with antivirals uh, or, or anything like that. I guess there are some, obviously, some sort of wacky cases where you have special populations of patients that are at higher risk for things like certain viral infections. And we have patients, uh, even actually patients with things like um, you know, asplenia and stuff like that. They they you actually can kind of get away with mostly thinking about them like 
you know, like other children with acute otitis media, it seems to be a part of the body where in a lot of people it reacts pretty similarly. Hmm. Um, if in this patient, let's say that we gave him the 10 day course of amoxicillin and he's coming back and still having symptoms, is your first thought that we messed up on the, we messed up on the antibiotic and, and need to bring in the septonir or that we're missing something like a uh, perforated TM or mastoiditis or or something else. So if someone has persistent symptoms after, say, just a, a prescription of amoxicillin, what, what's kind of going on? Well, let's, let's see if we can not get that far. I think 10 days is a long time in the life of Great. an 18-month-old kid that's not sleeping and, and, and everybody else that's living in that household. So sure. I, I do want to counsel parents on what to expect um, after we see them for a visit for this, before we, we wait till they're finished with the antibiotic. And, you know, you can... We can get into a whole discussion about the length of antibiotic treatment, but I'll give you the short answer. Nobody really knows. Um, but, but I do think, and this is actually a good pearl for head and neck infections in immunocompetent patients to begin with. This is definitely true for sinusitis. It's definitely true for deep space neck infections. And I, I think it's definitely true for otitis media. People get better within a range at their own pace, but they shouldn't be going backwards after they start to get better. So the contrast to that, for instance, is if I get a call from a 14-year-old, I took their tonsils out five days ago, and they said, you know, Eric, I was doing okay. And now, like, it's really getting harder to swallow, and I really feel lousy. My first thought is, yeah, when you're a teenager, it just sucks to get your tonsils out. I don't worry that they got an infection. I've never seen a post-operative pharyngitis from tonsillectomy. It just is a lousy recovery that has its roller coaster ups and downs. But if you have an infection that doesn't need something like abscess drainage, and hopefully you've made that decision before you put the patient just on antibiotics and, and made a decision that at least at that moment, you're not taking them to the operating room or doing an urgent tympanotentesis or an urgent drainage of a sinusitis that could be impinging on the eye. Once they start to get better, it really should be pretty steady. We shouldn't have fevers that are returning. Uh, we shouldn't have a resumed appetite in a young child that's then getting worse. So what I want parents to know is, I think in your young kid with an, a modern antibiotic that has good penetration in a part of the body that has an unbelievably good blood supply compared to like your pinky toe, this patient should start feeling better really in 24 to 48 hours. And if they're not, or if they are, and then after that, you feel like they're sliding back, you don't wait until you're done with the antibiotic. You need to call me immediately because that's probably the best sign uh, of failure right there. If they call you three days later and say, well, you know, he's definitely gotten steadily better and the fevers are gone, but he's really still unhappy when I lie him down and he's eating, but he really doesn't, I give him the bottle because even though he's, you know, 18 months old, I want to kind of sue them and let them know what he has. I'll often say, yeah, he may have sterilized that middle ear, but he's still got negative pressure and a sterilized effusion. So that doesn't bother me as much because clinically, as far as like, is this baby toxic? He's steadily moving away from that. That's how I want you to sort of think about that. And that's also speaks to the question as to, do we want to see the kids back at the end of the antibiotic course? I hope it's become clear at this point that the day you finish the antibiotic course is not a special day. First of all, I don't even know what day that should be. Day five, day seven, day 10, day 14. I think I know a little bit better for sinusitis and maybe for 
cervical adenitis than I do for otitis media. But I, I really feel like in otitis media, sometimes I feel like three days is enough. Sometimes 14 days is enough. Like I really don't know. And I don't think that the studies help you. That makes sense. Um, so you want to hear from that parent earlier in the process. And if you're really worried about that kid, then just call them every day. I mean, that's my answer to almost everything with an infection. Things in the head and neck and children move fast. The best example of that, which I know is not the topic of today's talk, but is otitis externa, incredibly painful. Um, thankfully, in immunocompetent healthy children, it is exceedingly rare that it would turn into something that's really scary and nasty. Um, but it's not beyond the possibility. And again, it's the kind of thing where once you start to get better, you should just keep getting better. It's not an up and down kind of thing. If patients aren't getting better, I want them back and I want them back now. Dr. Bowman, you're talking about someone who you needed to go to the OR immediately. I'm just curious, like on initial presentation, when that would be potentially indicated. So probably the, the most straightforward reason that you need to go to the OR urgently, like for a myringotomy. And, and usually if you're going to do a myringotomy, we put a tube because that'll just keep that hole open uh, for a while. The inflamed eardrum actually closes surprisingly quickly. Um, and so, you know, you can make a myringotomy, you can wash stuff out, you can culture, you can, people are getting into sort of squirting antibiotics and betadine and stuff into the middle ear, which actually has been very helpful. That's another topic for another day, but certainly when you have an immunocompromised patient. So I am, I have been surprised uh, at the number of times that the oncologists have called me uh, about a patient that's in the mi middle of therapy uh, that is complaining um, and, and whose counts are low. And I, I don't mess around with those patients because that can spread quickly. Um, there are rare cases when an individual ear infection just seems not to be responding to antibiotics. You get a young child often uh, under the age of 12 months and the pediatrician will call you and say, and they almost always have done everything exactly right. You know, I've been working on this for two or three weeks. This is the third round of antibiotics. This is the second intramuscular injection of ceftriaxone. The kid is miserable and the ear looks terrible. I'm not sure that that kid needs to go to the operating room tonight, but it really would be great to get them on tomorrow morning. And so, you know, it's funny, those cases come in waves. And I suspect that ha that has to do with, with the specific bugs that at that time in that community are either resistant or unusual. And we just, we don't figure out what it is because if you culture that kid in the OR, you know, it's been hopelessly messed up by all the antibiotics they've gotten, but you have a definitive treatment at that point. And I don't think that those children are more likely to go on to become hardcore ear infection kids. I think they just got unlucky. Obviously, mastoiditis, uh, the standard treatment for uh, mastoiditis is to do a mastoidectomy. Uh, I haven't actually done a mastoidectomy for acute mastoiditis in at least 10 years because what I found is that when we do a myringotomy and put a tube in, usually with that aggressive flushing, that's been sufficient and that's been really nice. Uh, the most recent one that I had to do uh, for what I thought was mastoiditis was a child who had what looked like pretty bad acute otitis media. His face went out on that side. And I did the mastoidectomy because I thought I was going to need to decompress the facial nerve uh, because the pressure from uh, the, the pus uh, can actually cause the paralysis. And by the time we got in there, like there was nothing left. The antibiotics had treated the acute otitis media. His mastoid and his middle ear were clear. It was very, very strange. Uh, but I certainly didn't apologize for taking that kid urgently to the OR and doing the mastoidectomy. Not a, 
Well, I guess other things, again, while you're figuring it out, if we think there's mental status changes, if, you know, but again, hopefully we have enough time to get some radiologic studies and see if we have something like a sinus thrombosis or even an extradural or even intraparenchymal a brain abscess. These are rare, uh, but, but that's obviously going to present with some worrisome stuff. Those cases, obviously, uh, I need some help from the neurosurgeons and the OR. But even in those cases, I would like to get a tube in because I don't want whatever that abscess is to be reseated. I want to get the, it seems crazy. Like if we're going to the OR emergently to do a craniotomy, let's take the extra three minutes and put a tube in. <laughs> exactly. Seems reasonable. Let's do a couple of quick hits. Uh, hopefully we can answer something because we're sort of running a little short on time uh, and we want to be um, very cognizant of the time we're taking from you. Um, so how would your treatment change if the TM was perforated on presentation? And then how, do you monitor this to make sure it closes or? So I tell parents, you know, it's, it's a pretty dramatic presentation. Parents tend to be pretty upset. Interestingly, they often notice that, that it was kind of like the zit got popped and patients often feel a lot better uh, once that happens. So that, that's good. The times that eardrums perforate from an infection, they almost always, at least in developed countries, seem to heal on their own, which is a good thing. You do want to monitor it, but you don't have to be too urgent about it. You do want to treat those patients with oral antibiotics. And the reason why is because that perforation may very well close before the antibiotic goes. And I don't think that they, I don't think they necessarily had like a really worse infection. There may be some people who, because of their anatomy, the expansion uh, of the fluid in a relatively small middle ear space just kind of happened to perf the drum. But it usually is a sign that it's, it's the real deal. Um, and so I think it's reasonable to treat that patient. I, I would still put the patient on drops. And it's interesting because it's a little disappointing to me that none of the guidelines say that. But I mean, hey, if there's even any chance that there's a little hole in that drum, drops are 5,000 to 10,000 times the concentration of what you're going to achieve as serum concentrations with systemic antibiotics. So like you clean out a little stuff in the canal that you can, even if you just mop up a little stuff that's near the meatus, you get some drops in, you're putting the kid on all antibiotics. To me, it's kind of like a freebie. So I think you should do drops if you think there's any chance there's an opening into the middle ear. And then, yeah, see the patient back, but not too soon. See them back as if you're monitoring them for a leftover sterile effusion in you know maybe a couple of months. And chances are, in a healthy kid, you won't be able to tell which ear it was that perforated. Now, I miss this. Did we, have we talked about which type of drops to go for? We haven't talked about that. The, the standard thinking now, of course, is that because aminoglycosides have such a notorious history when used systemically of causing ototoxicity, and in fact, they're even used therapeutically uh, for ototoxicity in patients with intractable vertigo. This is not something that we almost ever do in children. Um, that we really should stay away from them. But the truth is, is that we use them for decades actually safely. And it's not totally clear why ototoxicity from topical aminoglycosides is so rare. Some people think that because we're using them in inflammatory situations that the windows into the inner ear are protected. I don't really know. Uh, but it, the truth is that certainly in a place like the United States, most people are not comfortable prescribing them. And so we use fluoroquinolones, which are generally well tolerated. There's not a lot of allergy to them. I don't think there's almost any significant difference among them. And that includes the eye drops, which sometimes are more available and cheaper. Um, eye drops are a little bit more likely to sting because of the, the pH is not quite matched to the ear, but any eye drop is safe 
for the ear. The opposite is not true. I don't want the ophthalmologist sending me hate mail. <laughs> um, but eye drops can be used a lot. And in fact, in the United States, when we want to add a steroid, um, and we'll talk about that in a second, uh, sometimes it's hard to get the combo uh, that you want as far as quinolone and, um, and a steroid, but you can almost always get plain dexamethasone eye drops. And so as long as parents understand that there's a slight inconvenience to having to do, let's say, two drops from each of two bottles instead of four drops from one bottle, that can often be cheaper and easier. But the question about steroids comes up. And, and generally when there's inflammation, we like steroids. We are not thinking about topical steroids for short-term use in the ear as being something that could be an immunocompromising intervention. So you have to get that out of your head. This is not the same thing as putting the patient on one milligram per kilogram per day of prednisone for a few months. We worry about our patients that have things like serious lung and rheumatologic disease, that they're going to be more susceptible to infections. We, we're not worried about that at all. In fact, there might even be some evidence that short-term use of high-dose localized topical steroids like this actually enhances uh, the immune response, which may be part of the reason that it gets better. But I think it's primarily working by decreasing edema and in improving natural drainage. Uh, and so you should have a low threshold uh, to be prescribing uh, steroids with your quinolone uh, eardrops. Uh, and I think that that's true for otitis externa as well. And so you would do all three for a ruptured uh, TM, doing the oral antibiotics to make sure you're treating the acute otitis, doing the concentrated uh, antibiotics to get source control or unit there, and then with the steroids to help with the inflammation, and you can usually get that in the, the combination. So that's exactly right. Amazing. Wow. Those are great. You know, as a, as an ENT doctor, uh, you know, I see an ENT doctor, I see ET tubes and someone to help me for uncontrolled epistaxis in the emergency department. Um, <laughs> For ET, I, I see you guys for doing a lot more. You're you're oddly intelligent and very dexterous uh, individuals. But as far as ET tubes, when should we be thinking about this? What's the? How are they helpful? Um, what are they doing? Now, teach us about ET tubes. ET tubes are interesting, and and it you know it's it's like a lot of other things in in medicine and surgery. They we might have been doing the right thing for a while with for not exactly the right reason. Um, the thought was that it was an alternate drainage pathway, that patients that had eustachian tube dysfunction had poor drainage. Didn't totally explain why nasopharyngeal microorganisms were the culprit if their eustachian tube didn't open enough. That was always sort of an inconvenient fact. Um, and so we thought, well, you know, the middle ear is a box. All the walls are solid bone except for the eardrum, which is thin and easily accessible. Like, why not give it a shot? But it turns out actually that what it, it might do is actually improve drainage, improve opening. The body actually can do a pretty good job, even if stuff refluxes up the eustachian tube, of getting rid of it if the eustachian tube and the middle ear mucosa and the cilia and all that stuff are working. So I may be showing my age when I say this, but you guys may remember that tomato juice used to come in these big cans, you know, the big cylindrical cans. I'm, I, I am showing my age. Uh, like yeah. the tomato paste? No, no, no. It's like tomato juice, like yeah. a big can and actually pineapple juice also. Now we're so fancy. Everything comes in glass bottles. But anyway, the way you had to open it was you had to take that can opener that made like a single triangle. Yeah, you got to pop it on that side, right? Right. But remember, if you did one hole and then you turned the can, it went gug, gug. But if you made a small hole 180 degrees across for the air to rush in, it came pouring out. And now... And I think there's some good uh, uh, studies, including ones in animals that show this. We think that's one of the ways in which myringotomy tubes work. They allow 
air entry, right? We already know that we're at a pressure deficit because most of these patients that aren't draining, the eardrum's a little sucked in, at least because there's negative pressure. So we need more volume. Where's it going to come from? We have a hole on the outside. It's also a great pathway for children that are prone to continue getting acute otitis media, maybe because of their anatomy or their age and the things they're exposed to, even if they have tubes, for treating it without having to use systemic antibiotics. And then, of course, there's another, you know, grab bag of things, people with certain pressure problems, think people who need drug delivery. But that's, that's sort of the main thing. When should we think about putting tubes in? So as I had said before, even though it's not the primary topic of today's talk, I do think that the most important reason uh, to consider placing tubes in children, uh, and this includes older children and younger children, is signs of persistent eustachian tube dysfunction that may or may not be accompanied by a problem with recurrent acute otitis media, but it definitely would include problems with retraction, persistent middle ear fluid, conductive hearing loss that goes along with it, and mitigating potential risk of ongoing damage because of that. The classic example of that, for instance, is a child that we know has eustachian tube dysfunction because of poor muscle contraction, like a child with a cleft palate. Um, as, as people should remember, the uh, tensor veli palatini, which is sort of like the pulley that op pulls on the eustachian tube and opens it, is almost like those strings that hold up the tent. The stake that holds those strings in the ground is the midline of the soft palate. The midline of the soft palate is what's missing in children with a cleft palate. So that that's almost like a a rope like a kite that's hanging in the breeze. They can't open their eustachian tube well. A lot of those children, we put tubes in multiple times before they get to majority age. So that's sort of the best example. And there are studies to show that even though you are taking them back to the operating room and you're beating up the eardrum, you're probably better off than if you let their retraction dress progress and progress and progress. But getting back to the reasons that we might consider tubes in a child with recurrent ear infections, the guidelines don't have much to say about it. Um, and it's interesting because the guidelines from the American Academy of Otolaryngology, which you think would be like totally gung-ho about tubes, right. because that's what we do. And when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. They're actually uh, pretty clear that they don't think that recurrent acute otitis media by itself is an indication for tube placement. And the American Academy of Pediatrics actually does. And there's numbers that they give. And I guess you got to know it for the test. But I, I don't really care what the numbers are, because I think that the individual infections and the response to treatment and the frequency, they just vary so much from person to person and family to family. You need to listen to the parents and you need to talk to them and to referring primary care doctors, how much of a burden is it for this child? I mean, certainly there are situations where we make it easier. Again, we have pre-existing hearing loss or developmental delays. We don't even want the temporary setback associated with that. We have children that have serious allergies to the main classes of antibiotics that we use. Um, conversely, we have children that we think are higher risk for anesthesia. It is true that with modern anesthesiology, a short case like two placement, I can do an almost any even ultra high risk patient and be pretty confident that's going to be okay. But, you know, keeping a patient away from the OR is a win. There has been more talk in recent years about doing tubes on awake patients in the office. I think that's generally an extremely bad idea in children. Mm. And I don't know why that's coming back after we spent so many years trying to get people to take discomfort and anxiety in young children seriously. Um, but, uh, it's there, and, and some people advocate it as an option. 
whether or not that's actually in the aggregate safer and better than a brief anesthetic is uh, is probably still to be determined. So I think it's going to go with number, severity, and some mitigating factors as to whether you do it. I've always been mystified by the studies that say that it doesn't substantially decrease the incidence of acute otitis media, in some cases, because that has totally not been my experience. Uh, and secondly, because it's sort of missing the point. Let's say you knew for a fact that a child was going to have exactly the same number of ear infections after you put the tubes in until they graduated from ear infectiondom as before you put them in. You still might want to do it because you're going to avoid a lot of rounds of oral antibiotics. You're going to have much less pain and fever because an immediately draining ear infection is not nearly that big a deal for the patient as it is for the parent. And so you could still actually justify doing it. So, and you know that they're not building up fluid that you're going to have to worry about as a long-term thing between uh, episodes. Again, in the long run, a bigger concern for me than the infections. Most kids are going to graduate from their ear infections. You just got to do what you need to do to get through it. But if they're not going to graduate from their eustachian tube dysfunction until they're eight and we missed it, that's going to note, you're going to notice that as a problem even in high school. You mentioned, do you not treat with oral antibiotics in a AOM with a, if they have an ET tube in place? Almost never. Huh. And in fact, one of, there are actually, so the tympanostomy tube odorrhea or a draining infection through a perforation, which is essentially functionally the same thing, should be primarily treated with topical drops. And for a while, when these guidelines that said that specifically came out, I felt sort of like disappointed because lots of children were coming in and I was finding out that like they kept getting put on oral antibiotics. But I, I have to say that I developed a little bit more respect for that with the people in the trenches because they don't have some of the toys that I have. Drops only work if they get in. And if I have a child that I put tubes in and they come back in a few months later with an episode of drainage, and if you look at the studies, the vast, vast majority of children with tubes somewhere along the line are going to have an episode of drainage. I can vacuum all that stuff out. I can vacuum right on the lumen of the tube and know that the huge slug of drops that I put in 10 seconds after I did that is going to flood the middle ear. It might not even be necessary for the patient to do more drops at home. But I'm not the frontline person seeing that patient who says, all I'm seeing is a flood of purulent junk coming out of the canal. I don't even know if the tube is still in place. I don't know if that hole just reopened and just closed. I don't really know if drops are going to be helpful at all. So I would like people to use drops and I would like to use them primarily, but I have respect for the fact that sometimes it's not always so easy to tell. One more question then maybe to wrap up, but maybe this can be a short. Um, while there's not a clear number for when to do ET tubes, do you have a recommendation of when primary care doctors refer to ENT? I usually do three. They did three and then. Yeah. Yeah. I, I th three, three's a good, three's a good number, you know, probably for, for a lot of reasons, but, but I, I have to say, I think I probably learned that more from the parents uh, than I did from anything else. Th three times in a relatively rapid succession, um, it, it doesn't mean that that patient is going to get tubes, but it, it means it's probably good that they came in to see somebody like me. And, and in fact, I, I still think that a very large number of those children are not going to end up getting surgery. I am a big believer in the seasonality, especially in parts of the country like where I live in New England, of ear infection. So for instance, if a patient comes to me for consideration of tubes because of recurrent acute otitis media and it's April and the ears don't look that bad. So I'm not wondering, well, wait a second, has this non-infected infusion now been there since before the first infection in December? I might say, you know what? The warm weather is coming. We've really got to try and wait. 
if this kid gets another ear infection in the beginning of June, then I know I got to put the tubes in. But if they don't, by the time the cold season comes back, which in Connecticut is in early October, you know, when the older sibling gets the first cold from school, your kid may be bigger, may not really have an ear infection problem anymore. As opposed to the child that got the first one at the end of July, got the second one at the end of August, and now it's early October, the kid's got a snotty nose and another raging ear infection, we're probably going to put tubes in that kid or we're going to have a horrendous winter. Is there a typical age where you feel like at that age there, the ET tube has shifted enough that they are at lower risk for recurrent ear infections? I mean, there seems to be a big drop off in the high twos, but not nearly everybody. It's such a big pyramid that there's still a number of patients in it. So it doesn't worry me. But then there also seems to be another big drop off to me after about like almost five. I don't worry about the small number of older kids that still get the occasional ear infection. I'm just not sure why that is. I'm more concerned about the eustachian tube dysfunction in those kids, that the fluid and pressure is predisposing them to it. But there's still a small number like that. I realize there is one more thing that I don't think we talked about that I think briefly we should, and that's who should be treated based on age, based on symptoms. When do we pursue this watchful waiting? When do we pull the trigger and say this patient needs antibiotics? Yeah, so don't misinterpret the studies. The studies talk about stratifying children by age. Um, under six months of age is sort of a special group. Acute otitis media in that group should be pretty rare. And that's pretty serious. I mean, people in the pediatrics world know that anything that's infectious in a young infant like that gets treated very, very seriously. I don't think we need to say much more beyond that, except the exam can be difficult. And so if you think you need help, don't be embarrassed and say, this is just an ear infection, but I, I need, I need, you know, the high powered microscope. Just, just call an otolaryngologist if you have a two month old that has acute otitis media and there's any question. But you know, the big group is six to 24 months of age. And it seems like the guidelines shift whatever likelihood that they're going to treat with their scores and their aggregate assessments a little higher if they're in that group than if they're over it. But again, the thing that pediatricians, family practitioners, um, med peds people know better than anything else is how to size up the patient and the family. There are definitely some very with it 18-month-olds and parents that know their kids like the back of their hand where you could say, you know what, I this kid may need antibiotics, but I don't think we're going to get in trouble if I ask this parent to call me in, in 24 or 48 hours if things don't get better. And then there's sometimes that wild three-year-old and you say, I'm just worried that no one's going to be able to tell. I don't think that you should apologize for sort of crossing uh, the guidelines uh, on that. There is this thought that maybe the younger kids, even if they're not harder to, let's say, observe and reassess, are just at higher risk of a complication if you don't treat them. But I think for the kids that are over like almost a year. I don't think that's really true. I think you can you can factor your judgment about knowing the family into that. And what about bilateral otitis? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. It's again, in the studies, they seem to sort of stratify, but I'm not totally sure what to do with the information. One thing that's nice about the bilateral is, again, all these studies are sort of kind of dancing around the elephant in the room, which is, are we sure that we're dealing with acute otitis media? I guess the chances that you're dealing with at least unilateral true acute otitis media when you diagnose bilateral acute otitis media are pretty high. You're probably right on at least one of the sides. So maybe that should sort of uh, argue in favor of it. I think you could also make the argument that the patient would be less likely to get better symptomatically in 48 hours because 
only one of the ears still has to be lousy for them to be symptomatic. And so you may end up just sort of treating them anyway. But you could still say it's bilateral, but you're hanging in there. I think we're probably going to do the antibiotics, but you never know. Right, but they're not at higher risk necessarily. No, I don't think so. Good to cool. know. This has been great. You know, uh, we, we've talked a lot about uh, the approach, the diagnosis, the pathophysiology of ketotitis, and all these things. Are there main take-home points that you think our uh, listeners who are training in pediatrics or have an interest in pediatrics uh, should go to, should walk away with? Well, as we talked about before, I do think that it is a particular part of the physical exam that's tough, but it's important. Remember that um, you know, ketotitis media is a one of the most common reasons that Americans go to the doctor. And so if you're going to be taking care of children, you just, you got to get good at this. There are always some things technologically on the horizon. They always seem to be about five years away that are supposed to help us. But in the end, like you're, they're not coming. Um, you, you're, you're going to need to just get good at seeing it. Even if somebody gets a good photograph, you're still going to have to make a decision by looking at the photograph. I think that's a big take-home point. Um, and I think the other take-home point is, once you've ruled out some sort of wacky complication that's occurring right now, you can almost always mitigate being wrong or not perfectly right with your initial diagnosis if you have good communication and a structured contingency plan. If you really were wrong and the kid absolutely should have been treated, but the treatment doesn't start for 36 or 48 hours because you thought it wasn't as bad or it wasn't as much of a no-brainer to treat as it turned out to be, the kid is still likely to be fine. Maybe it would have been a little bit better if a sleepless night that was not going to be avoided without antibiotics uh, ended up happening anyway. But that's not the worst thing in the world. I don't think that I want people living in fear of, if I missed that this needed to be treated right now, I am markedly increasing the risk of some sort of bad complication because I don't think that that's the case with acutotitis media. Awesome. Thank you so much for the time that you spent with us. Um, before we let you go, do you have anything to plug? We have an annual symposium in our practice. We actually have done 15 of them. And this year, because of the pandemic, we did it virtually. And of course, I made the mistake of only inviting the same people that always came in person. Uh, but we're going to do a better job in the future. Uh, our symposium is always on pediatric otolaryngology topics, and it's designed for the primary care practitioner. It tends to be pretty high yield because it's, uh, it's like a four-hour evening thing, usually on a Thursday. And uh, I, I will make sure that I get information out there uh, because if we're going to have it um, virtual, even partially virtual, um, then there is no geographic limitation. So I would love to have any interested... Uh, uh, people yeah, join us for that. We'll be there. We'll send out the info. That'll be great. Sounds good. I appreciate it. I love it. I also, uh, you'll be happy to know that I am working on my ENT skills and that I just bought this new, you can get them on Amazon now for like 40 bucks to take photos of the tympanic membrane. I thought this was just going to be some cheapo thing that was a throwaway because it's geared at parents. It, it's right. amazing. I'm some of them are excellent. They're, they're, you probably got one that has a true HD camera, like a 720p uh, camera. I'm not even sure. I mean, it was 40 bucks, but uh, I'll yeah. put something in the show notes. But yeah, oh, I mean, yeah. it's phenomenal quality. And, and again, we can, we can leverage the value of that by keeping a catalog of those and showing each other. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I, I can't speak for all my colleagues, but I think I know pediatric otolaryngologists pretty well. They're a pretty friendly bunch. 
you could call me up out of the blue and say, you don't know me, but I got some pictures. Can I ask yeah. you some questions? Yeah. I mean, I, n nobody can resist the flattery, so you can always <laughs> find somebody to show them to. That's, okay. um, yeah, it makes, uh, makes consulting a lot easier. There's a, there's a Hopkins pediatric dermatologist who was the same, who would always just take, uh, uh, happy to take any photos just to look at. Just, just really love the field. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really thank appreciate you so much. It. Yeah, appreciate. Yeah, thank you for especially taking all the time. I mean, this was this was phenomenal. This has been another episode of the Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly knowledge food formula feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. That's right. We are committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps our rating and self-esteem. Uh, you can also contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Cleo Rochat, and our wonderful social media team on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Uh, we have an incredible team for every episode. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. I have been Justin Lee Burke. And I've been Cleo Rochat. And this has been Chris the Chi Man Chu. Thank you and good night. Like and subscribe, guys. What was that? I don't know. I was just going to say like and subscribe. Oh, yeah. <laughs>